Jeremiah chapter 1 is what we have been launching from, the book that we are studying. So these are the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests from the town of Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. The Lord first gave messages to Jeremiah during the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. The Lord's messages continued throughout the reign of King Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, until the 11th year of the reign of King Zedekiah, another of Josiah's son. In August of that 11th year, the people of Jerusalem were taken away as captives. So real quick, and those that are part of our church family, you'll know what I'm going to ask you to say next. Those of you that aren't, you're going to catch on real quick because this becomes a big topic I use a lot. But when you study the Bible, you need to study it in what? Context. It's so important. So context here. Jeremiah gives to us the context of when he's writing. So he says, it's in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. And it goes through the time of Zedekiah. So that, that's, that's good. We get the, the, the date. So 627 BC to 586 BC, 40 plus years of ministry. That is what he has been serving and, do, and, and ministering in. Now, there's another thing that should jump out to you when you're reading this. And this is, I, I did it for you. I put it in yellow. This name jumps out three times in three verses. We hear this name, Josiah, son of Ammon, uh, Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, and another one of Zedekiah, another one of Josiah's son. So Josiah clearly plays a pivotal role for Jeremiah, right? So we need to look at the life of Jeremiah to understand, or to life of Josiah to understand Jeremiah. But here's the hard part. We're going to study Josiah, who makes a big difference in the life and the ministry of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah doesn't give us much history on Josiah. So we got to go to the other books of the Bible to know and understand Josiah a little bit better. But before I do that, I need to give to you an understanding of how your Bible is laid out, because it's not chronological. It, this is how your Bible is laid out. You have, the, there are uh, the 37 books of the Old Testament. There are, they're written uh, not in chronological order. They're written by, uh, instead, they're given to you in chrono, uh, categorical and uh, in, in model. So the first five are called the Pentateuch. Those are given to us. They're the written, most say they're written by Moses. And that they're given to us to lay out the law. So that's the first five books. Then we have the history now, those are relatively chronological, so if you were to read those in order, you would be kind of in order, sort of. I'll talk to you in a minute about, I'll give it to you in a second. Then you have five books of wisdom and poetry, and then you have five books of the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, what makes the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is not their weight. Okay? <laughs> major no, it, it wasn't that they were in the minor leagues and they were in the major league. No, this, the only thing is that the major prophets are longer than the minor prophets. That's it. So they're not given to you in chronological order. Now, if you were, this is a, a, a kind of a good idea of roughly what it would look like chronologically. So immediately, <laughs> okay, now your Bible just got all jumbled, didn't it? So now you're looking at this and you're going, okay, I get Genesis, Exodus, but in the midst of all that, there's an interesting one. Genesis, Job happens at the same time that Genesis is happening. There you go. We, we'll, we can, we'll do a series later on, on Job just to have fun with that. I think at uh, the same time that Exodus happened, Leviticus is, uh, goes in line with that. Uh, Numbers goes in line with Deuteronomy. 
Then you get to Judges, which we begin that history of, uh, um, and Joshua, Judges, all this is happening. Uh, you get all uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Those are written in order, or that's in order. And then you have 70 years of exile, which actually Jeremiah prophesies about. He gives us this, hey, there's going to be 70 years that the entire nation is going to be exiled. That's the Babylonian exile. We're going to be talking about that later. 70 years of that. And during that time, there's Daniel and Ezekiel writing about that. And then there's Ezra and Nehemiah when the the Israelites are allowed to come back to Jerusalem and build the temple. So if we're going to be studying Josiah, he's in the same time as Jeremiah, right? Which Jeremiah actually kind of goes beyond that. Jeremiah should stretch from 2 Samuel or from 1 Kings to 2 Kings because he covers all that time period. And so if we just come down, we got, there's, uh, for, there's Jeremiah, 1 Kings. We're going to look at Second Chronicles is where we're going to find Josiah. So uh, Josiah is given to us. We're going to go to, be, in a minute, be going to Second Chronicles. And we're going to look at the chapter 34. If you want to go in your Kings, we'll go parallel with that. But let me, let me give to you a timeline real quick so that you guys can see all these different characters that are in uh, connected to Jeremiah and Josiah. So Jeremiah is from 627 to 580 BC. Connected to him is who we're going to be focusing on today is this guy named Josiah. He's the king. Now he's king from 640 to 609 BC. So this is who we're talking about. So you can see Jeremiah overlaps him a little bit. Now they, in, first, uh, in Jeremiah chapter one, we see that uh, he mentions this guy named uh, Jehoiakim. It's one of Josiah's sons. There, there's he. Then he says that he spoke all the way through the time of Zedekiah, who was also, uh, um, also one of uh, Josiah's sons. But there's a gap there. What's happened in the gap? There's this dude named Jehoiachin, who was only on the throne for three months. So Jeremiah doesn't even mention him. Just kind of like, eh, he doesn't really count. He didn't really do much there. So but we also find out in the first chapter of Jeremiah that Josiah's father was Amon. Now, Amon, if you study through the first Kings and second Chronicles, is most remembered for his idolatrous practices. He's very short. He's only on the throne for two years, which ends up leading to a revolt. His own people assassinate him. He's done. And that's when Josiah gets put into position. We'll get to that in just a minute. But before Amon, you get his dad, who is Manasseh, who is, without a doubt, the Bible tells us, the worst of Judah's kings. The worst of the worst. Wicked, evil, set up Asherah poles, built uh, uh, these massive uh, things to Baal. Uh, what, do they, what do they make? Sacrifices, idols, and all that stuff. He's doing all this to the point. He got so wicked in his worshiping of false gods that he sacrificed his own son to the gods. This, is, this guy was, was wicked, but Manasseh's story is a unique one because he starts off incredibly evil, called the most wicked of all Judah's kings, and then he gets taken away to exile, goes before God and says, God, forgive me, I've been wrong. And what does God do when you ask him forgiveness? He forgives you. Manasseh comes back is allowed to come back to Jerusalem and, and for his last short uh, several years of his, of his lifespan, 
He tries to make a, a return to God. He takes out the idols to Baal and the temple, and he tries to make all these things go right. But he failed to convince his son, Amon, who, when, uh, when Manasseh dies, returns it all back to its place, or to its wrong place, but he thought the right place. This is what Josiah is being born into. His father was called the most wicked of kings, or his grandfather was called the most wicked of kings, but had a moment where something in him clicked, and he asked God for forgiveness, and there's a transformation in him. Josiah was born when his grandfather was still living. So we don't know how much influence he had on him, but we know that his father turned his back to God. So let's go. You ready to get into Josiah? Because here we go. Josiah chapter 34, or Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years, and he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor, David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. So interesting here, Josiah's actually prophesied about in 1 Kings chapter 13. So several hundred years before Josiah is born, they're already talking about him by name. Josiah's going to come and he's going to get things back. He's going to get rid of the worship of Baal. Then he, so uh, when you read the parallel in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, he's brought in at eight years old, He's following the right way. And then uh, going down to verse 3 of Second Chronicles, verse 34, it says, During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young. So it, it just, let's do some math. You ready? He's eight when he's put on the throne. Eight years into his reign, while he's still young. So how old is he? Sixteen. Look at you, a bunch of math wizards up in here. You guys are good. 9 a.m. missed it totally. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. Uh, <laughs> Says he was, so he's 16. While he was still young, Josiah began to seek the, the, the God of his ancestor, David. When in the 12th year, so how old is he now? There you go. We got, we've got a couple who are confident. Some of you are going, um, 20. <laughs> he's 20. He began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines and astropoles and carved idols and cast images. So he's still, he's 20 years old. He's making a difference. Now, here's what I want to ask you a question about Josiah in, as, as a young man. And remember what he's born into. He's born into chaos, crisis, the people, his grandfather, wicked, his father, wicked. He's born, and for some reason, he, something changes. There's a, there's, we, we're not given an exact answer to this. But if you study the Bible in its context, there's a prophet named Zedekiah. Uh, Z- Z- oh, my goodness. Zephaniah. There it is. Got it. There's another one called Zedekiah, and I almost went there. But Zephaniah. He, ha- he has a prophecy that's only three chapters long. It's in your Bible. But if you date it, you'll find out that it happened at the very beginning of Josiah's reign. Now, most scholars will say that they'll follow some names and they'll connect the names and they'll say, well, this uh, Zephaniah is probably the grandson of Hezekiah, who was the king before Manasseh, who made all the good changes, was known as one of the best kings that Judah ever had. So a grandson comes along, Zephaniah is leading the people, or leading in the position 
in the temple around has, uh, Josiah. Lots of names here. Let's keep them straight, all right? <laughs> so, so most believe that he was in the court with Josiah as he was making these early decisions and directed him in the right path. See, Josiah needed somebody to be in his life when he didn't know what step to take next. It's called someone to care for you. When you're growing up, you don't have the ability to make the right decisions, right? You need someone to tell you what your next decision needs to be. As you get older, you get the opportunity to make some decisions on your own and mess up. And, and you, that's okay, but just, you need somebody to care for you, right? This is, this is what you need in your life, is you need someone to help you when you can't help yourself. Because I'm telling you, there's going to be a time in your life where the tears are going to be so heavy and blinding you so much out of grief or anger that you're not going to know which next step you need to take. And you need to have people around you who are going to care enough about you to guide you in the right direction. That's why we do connect groups. So he has these people around him caring for him, those getting him to where he needs to go. Now, now one, one reason that, that we do connect groups is so that you'll have somebody around you who will care for you. And here's what's so important. No one knows what you need unless you tell someone what you need. No one knows your needs. No one can care for your needs if no one knows your needs. And this is one of the things that breaks my heart in ministry, is that I'll have, I'll, we'll have people who come in, they'll be growing, You'll, you've, you've seen it, They're doing, they seem to be going down the right path, and all of a sudden, they fall off the cart. They go down the wrong path. They make decisions, you're like, what in the world just happen. They'll, they'll turn their back and say, I, the, the church has hurt me. They don't care about me. And the problem is, is that, that it's not that the church doesn't care. It's that the church didn't know your need. And when the church doesn't know your need, we can't meet your need. That's why you need to be in a group that you can trust uh, with people around you who you can trust with your needs. Because I don't want you coming up in here on a Sunday morning and get in front of everybody going, here's my need. Last night, that, that's, this isn't the place. Okay. You have to have a group around you that you trust and love, that care for you, that can meet your need. And, because, and it, it, honestly, this is the way we do our benevolence at this church. If you call this church and you say, hey, I'm in need, I need this, the way that it works is we will immediately say, did you talk to your connect group leader? Because if your connect group leader comes to us and says, I have a, we have a need in our group, the church automatically, without question, backs up the connect group leader. And we'll do whatever we can to meet the need. But if you call us and you're not connected to the church and we don't know what, if your need's real or false or just made up and you're just going down the phone books going, calling every church in the, on the list, we'll say, hey, we, we partner with T4C. We give them money every month to meet needs in our community. Call them. It's not because we're mean. It just gives us the opportunity to meet the needs of those that we know need, need met. Make sense? So you have to have somebody around you who cares for you. Josiah clearly had someone around him who cared for him. You jump down to verse 8 of chapter 34, and it says, In the 18th year, how old is he? 26. <laughs> After he purified the land and the temple, Josiah appointed Saphan, son of Isaiah, Masai, the governor of Jerusalem, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, 
the royal historian, to repair the temple of the Lord. Now, I just want to show you some things here. So you guys, Josiah appoints Saphan. He appoints Masai. He appoints Joah. And they gave it to, to the temple. So he's got all these people around him. They gave Hilkiah, the high priest, the money that had been collected by the Levites who served as gatekeepers at the temple of God. Real quick, that is, Hilkiah here is not the father of Jeremiah, the prophet who we're studying. It's a different Hilkiah. It says, he gave the, the, the gifts were brought by the people from Manasseh, Ephraim, and from the remnant of Israel, those left over from the, that haven't been taken away by the Assyrian Empire, as well as, for, as from all Judah, Benjamin, and, from, and the people of Jerusalem. While they were bringing out the money. So he's got all these people around him. They're working with him. They're partnering with him. While they were bringing out the money collected at the Lord's temple, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law and the Lord, uh, the book of the law of the Lord that was written by Moses. Now, real quick, that's the Pentateuch as we know it, or the Torah for them. So he says, Hilkiah, uh, Hilkiah said to Saphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Saphan. When the king heard what was, uh, what was in, written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Now, <laughs> this is not a Hulk Hogan moment, okay? He's not going on the, ah, okay? <laughs> you read this term in the Bible a lot that they tore their clothes. Tearing their clothes is usually, and it adds here, in despair, so he's tearing their clothes because he is brokenhearted. He realizes that he's in a bad spot. So they tear their clothes and, and a sign of, I am torn. I am broken. I will I, I, it's a symbol of what they're feeling on the inside. So he says, then he gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahakim, uh, son of Saphan, Akbor, son of Micah. <laughs> yeah, those names. <laughs> The other guy that was a court secretary, the other guy that was his personal advisor, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me. So again, here's all these names. He says, I, this guy, I want this guy, I want this guy. Oh yeah, that guy too. This guy, go to the temple. I want you to partner with me and speak to the Lord for all the remnant of Israel and Judah. Inquire about the words written in the scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger has been poured out on us because our ancestors have not obeyed the word of the Lord. We have not been doing everything in the in this everything this scroll says we must do. Here's what he does. He says, "Guys, we're in a bad spot." And he brings everybody and he says, "Hey, we've got to do this together. We've got to partner together and we got to move forward." Again, you are the, I, the clichés are clichés for a reason. They're usually right. But dream uh, teamwork makes the dream work. Right? You can do more connected to people than you can do by yourself. This is a, all throughout Scripture. This is, we see it all in uh, Ephesians. I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for the work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship. I love that verse, but it doesn't say, I am God's workmanship. It says, We are God's workmanship. That created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the power of a church, that we can do great things together. We make an impact together. We serve together, 
we build together. That is why being in a connect group is so valuable. And I, this is, uh, we're, we're really challenging uh, our connect group leaders to find a way to serve the other six days of the week. So as you're in part of your connect group, you're looking for opportunities to serve outside these four walls and invest in our community because we serve together, we make a greater difference, and we build together. So he's got people around him that care for him. He's got people that are around him that are partnering with him. And then in verse 30, uh, 22 of chapter 34, it says, So Hilkiah and the other men went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Hudah. She said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice that she, because a lot of times I hear people say, well, women shouldn't be in leadership in the church. Clearly, oh, that's a, that only happened in the New Testament. No, it happened in the Old Testament too. I'll keep going. It's my little platform for just a second. She said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this city and its people, and all the curses written in the scroll that was read to the king of Judah will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them. For everything they have done, my anger will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. Wow. Like, hey, we need, I found this good, this book. It says that we're doing the wrong thing. Hey, maybe we can uh, not have it happen. Go check with the prophetess and see what she says. And she says, God's going to do it. You're in trouble. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord said. The Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourselves yourself before God when you heard his words against this city and its people. You humbled yourself. Anytime you see some word being repeated, there's a reason. You humbled yourself and you tore your clothing in despair and you wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until, until after you have died and been buried in peace. You yourself will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this city and its people. This is, this is such a, I don't have a lot of time to, to spend on this, but this is something you have to understand. When we, as a people, humble ourselves before God and say, we are not right. We need to get ourselves in the right position and we repent. See, it's one thing to go, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And then to, to, uh, it's a whole other thing to say, I'm wrong and I'm turning to right. That is repentance. And that's what God calls us to do. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He literally was saying to us, you are broken. You are disconnected. Your vertical relationship, man to God, is destroyed. But because I have come and I have died for your sins, I'm going to heal that. All you have to do is repent. Turn to me and I will heal you. We have to humble ourselves to the point of saying, I need a savior. And when we do, God pushes the judgment away. This is what he does in, to, to, in this situation. He pushes it away. And if the next king would have humbled himself, he'd have pushed it even further. This is where we find ourselves. We have to get to a place where we are hearing ourselves. And here's what, what Huda does for, for Josiah. If she encourages him in the midst of the crisis. This is this is so valuable and something we have to understand that we need in our lives. We have 
everywhere around us, people telling us all the negativity. Everywhere around you, negativity can be found. It's in, it's in the news. It's in uh, on every, there's not a place you go where negativity isn't shoved down your throat. You need somebody around you who's going to say, hey, it's crazy around you, but you're going to be okay. This is, I, I, yesterday, uh, I mean, I'm so thankful for this because <laughs> I'm at the fairgrounds. I'm bidding on some chickens and rabbits and doing my thing, and my phone rings, and it's, uh, it's Monty, one of my overseers. Many of you have met him and, and know him, and he's going to be back in a couple months hanging out with us again. But, so Monty calls me, and Monty's one of those, so it's, it's automatically, there's several people who have immediate access to my life. So I'm at fairgrounds and there's bidding and all this going on, so I, I step out, and he can still hear the, the, the noise of the fairgrounds going on. Hey, that stuff. <laughs> no clue what he's ever saying. I'm just like, yeah? <laughs> and and he's, I, I step out, I call him right back. I say, hey, what's going on? And he say, hey, I was just calling to tag in and say, you've got this. That's it. Now, that doesn't happen by accident. I don't have a guy in my life who calls me just to encourage me by accident. I had to be intentional in allowing somebody access to my life so that they could come into my life and encourage me. You need that in your life. You need to have people around you who intentionally step in and say, hey, I know it's chaos in your life right now. I know things aren't going where you thought they should go. I know things are just falling apart all around you, but you got this. You got this. Go preaching. Amen. That's what the, the value of, of those connect groups. I, I want to encourage you. Get in a connect group. I know you are because you, I know every single one of you are going to get in a connect group. And when you get in the connect group, I want you to find somebody that you're confident sharing your phone number with. And that you say, hey, just every once in a while, shoot me an encouraging word. Every once in a while, just check in on me. Second Chronicles, jump down to verse 29. It says, then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord and the, all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the Levites, all the people from the greatest to the least. Then the, there the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey, obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. He promised to obey the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. And he required everyone in Jerusalem and the people of Benjamin to make similar, a similar pledge. The people of Jerusalem did so, renewing their covenant with God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the entire land of Israel and required everyone to worship the Lord their God. And throughout the rest of his lifetime, they did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah walks away from getting encouraged by Ahuda. And what does he immediately do? He encourages his entire nation. See, when you have people around you who are encouraging you, you're able to walk into your workplace and encourage that place. When you have people that are able to encourage you and invest in you and say, you've got this, you're able to walk into your school and say, guys, we can overcome this. We, we have to know that when we are encouraged, it flows and we're able to encourage others. So then the next chapter, Josiah throws the biggest of all parties. He throws the Passover. And the Passover is second largest only to King Solomon's when he actually uh, commemorated the, t the temple. 
And then in verse 35, verse 20, chapter 35, verse 20, it says, After Josiah had finished restoring the temple, King Necho of Egypt led his army up from Egypt to battle at Carmish on the Euphrates River. So here's what's happening. Remember, the Assyrians are being overtaken by the Babylonians. Well, the Egyptians are partnered with the Assyrians. So they said, we're going to come up, we're going to fight against the Babylonians. But to get there, they had to go through Judah. Josiah says, nope, you're not coming through here. Says, but the king, uh, uh, so just, and Josiah and his army marched out to fight him. But King Necho sent a message, messengers to Josiah with this message. What do you want with me, king of Judah? I have no quarrel with you today. I'm on my way to fight another nation. Josiah, this isn't your fight. And God has told me to hurry. Do not interfere with God who is with me or he will destroy you. But Josiah refused to listen. But refused to listen to Nico, to whom God had indeed spoken. And he would not turn back. Instead, he disguised himself and led his army into battle on, on the plain of Megiddo. But the enemy archers hit King Josiah with their arrows and wounded him. He cried out to his men, take me from the battle, for I am badly wounded. So they lifted Josiah out of his chariot and placed him in another chariot. Then they brought him back to Jerusalem, where he died. King Josiah, the one who was doing all the reforms, was leading a revival in his nation, dies fighting another man's battle. Now what's here that's interesting isn't so much that's what's there, but what's not there. Is this is the first time that you'll hear what is happening in Josiah's life and there's no men around him. He doesn't ask for guidance. He doesn't ask his counselors. He doesn't look to those who are there to be with him. Instead, he makes a split decision and says, I'm going this direction. No one calls out his blind spot. No one says, hey, shouldn't you go before God and ask whether you should go into this battle or not? There's no record of that, and intentionally so. See, we need people in our lives because we can have people around us who care for us, we can have people around us who are partnering with us and we can be doing great things in ministry. We can have people around us who are encouraging us. But if we don't have people in our lives who are going to protect us, we're going to end up losing in a battle that we shouldn't be fighting. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 says, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three or even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So we need somebody who's going to have our back. We need somebody who's going to be in our corner with us. Deegan, can I use you for a second? De- Deegan, if I'm fighting and I'm going in this direction, and I've got this battle coming this way, but I don't see what's behind me, my blind spot. But the Bible says if we're back to back, he's got my back and I've got his. We've removed the blind spots, and three are even better. So when we understand that when we're in these connect groups, it's not just a group to hang out with, but it's a group that I'm asking to care for me, to partner with me, that will encourage me and will protect me. Thanks, Deegan. We need people in our lives who will come alongside and do this with us. Because God says, hey, I know I fixed the vertical relationship, but when I fixed the vertical relationship, I said, I need you to be my church, your ecclesia, which literally means a gathering 
of people. I need you to do this together. I need, need you to do this. So when we fix the vertical, immediately we step into the horizontal. Today, I want to give you that opportunity in both of those. One is to, when you walk out of here, I know you're going to do this because you want to grow in your relationship and you're not preparing to fail. You're preparing to succeed. You're going to go out there and you're going to join a connect group. If you can't join on a paper, get on, your, on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the app. The groups are at the bottom. Click on it. Find them all. Join one. But right now, I want to give you the opportunity to connect that with that vertical relationship. And all it is is simply that, what we've just talked about, repenting. Saying, God, I'm humbling myself before you. I'm going to turn to you, and I'm going to follow you. It's a simple prayer. It's the beginning of this relationship that you'll have with him. And so what I want to do is I want to pray this prayer. You can repeat it. Use the same words I use, or you can use your own words if you'd like. You can say it out loud or to yourself. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, will you pray this with me? Lord Jesus, I turn to you because you died for me. On that cross, you paid for my sins and you give me the gift of salvation. I'm gonna follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen.